alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to Muslim Like Me. I'm your host, Hodan Qalif. And I'm glad to be back. Um, before I start, I want to address the elephant in the room. I have not uploaded for definitely, I think, well over a month and a half. And the reason for me not uploading, um, for those of you who follow me on Instagram, if you don't, it's at Sprinkles of Black. I haven't been able to upload because I basically moved across the world. <laughs> I moved um, back to Minneapolis and the whole moving process, getting settled not only at home but also at work and with my schoolwork now that I'm literally nine hours behind everybody else and still with the same grad school workload. Honestly, grad school and academia is like its own episode. I don't want to get too deep into that, but I'm back, guys. Um, full disclosure, I actually recorded an episode before I left Nairobi with um, a close friend of mine, and we really wanted to put the episode out, but I got a lot of issues in regards to the um, sound, and I didn't want to put anything out there that wasn't the best quality or something that wasn't audible because a good chunk of our conversation um, just didn't sound right and I didn't want to put that out so sadly that's what happened with that but we discussed so many great topics from racial identity living abroad as a black woman to imposter syndrome and just so many good like beneficial great on everyone's mind topics and uh, thinking about it I literally have so much ill for the fact that I wasn't able to upload that episode but I'm back now and we're here to discuss a lot of more important topics as you guys can see based on the title of today's episode um, and before I hop into that in itself because we are going to discuss this in length um, I also want to say shout out to everybody who's been listening, shout out to everybody who's been sharing with their family and friends, and to the lovely, lovely messages you guys have been leaving me on Instagram. I responded to a couple, and it really warms my heart that there are so many people out there who find Muslim like me beneficial, and that it's changed something or made you, f or added value, you know, it doesn't really have to change, but like added value to your life or that you felt like my episodes resonated with you. I was really nervous when I started this podcast because I got the usual, you know, self-questioning of, is this good enough? Am I good enough? Um, will people want to hear what I have to say? Will people relate to what I have to say? Because I have a specific, unique lived experience that I didn't really realize that many, many, many other people do share with me as, you know, Somali, as Muslim, as African, as Black, as a woman. Um, and so many of you resonated with it. So many people who don't even have my shared identity. So I just wanted to quickly say shout out to everyone. And all the love is very well received. Um, if you're listening to this right now, then I already have an Instagram account up for Muslim Like Me. And you guys can just scroll down and check in the links below to follow it if you want to follow it. I'd greatly appreciate that. And yeah, let's let's get into today's topic because it's definitely not an easy one for anyone to cover. We are almost Ramadan again, alhamdulillah. We are, I guess, maybe at this point, maybe two weeks away from Ramadan. Um, and of course, we're all sharing the messages of, you know, everybody clean your heart, good intentions, ask for forgiveness, forgive others. 
um, and all that good stuff, which is great. And I do um, definitely want everyone to start Ramadan with, you know, a clean heart and a clean mind. But something that our communities as Muslims and more specifically for me as Somalis that we tend to dance around is the idea of substance use disorders or otherwise known as SUDs. A lot of people within our communities who face and are struggling with substance use disorders oftentimes more than not do not have people to turn to, do not have the support that they need. And it's really sad to admit that, you know. I look at it from my perspective not only as, you know, a person who is in this community and sees the struggle, but also as a clinical psychologist and someone who is looking to specialize in chemical dependency and trauma. And the interconnectedness of, you know, chemical dependency in our community with the struggle with our faith is not something that you can ignore. It's very, very, very glaring. And a lot of the times those who do suffer from substance use disorders, um, again, I will be using SUDs um, to discuss this. I do not really like the term addict. And I've discussed this a couple times with colleagues and with my professors and stuff. And I just feel like, honestly, like just speaking from a very, very candid perspective, it's really, really dehumanizing, you know? Like when you look at someone and say addict, how do you think that makes them feel, right? I just want you guys to like ponder over what you think that feels like. It's very stigmatizing. It's very detaching from someone's humanity to refer to them as an addict. And I just choose consciously, both as a human and as a clinical psychologist, to use someone struggling with substance use disorder as a alternative term that's more humanizing and removes the person from their disorder. Like any other mental illness or any other, you know, illness that isn't physiological, we separate people, or at least we should be, because again, in our community, mental health in itself is something that opens a Pandora's box of different conversations that really have nothing to do with mental health. But for example, if we're looking at someone who suffers from depression or anxiety or PTSD, we don't call them, or we should not rather, again, some people really just are very disappointing, to be frank. We should not call a person by their disorder. And nine times out of ten, those who suffer from substance use disorders are called by the disorder. And what that does psychologically to a person, not only attaching or putting a name on that disorder in a very rude manner, honestly, because it's like, why would you talk to anybody like that? Like, would you talk to your parents like that? Would you talk to your friends like that? Would you talk to your siblings like that? And if you're a decent person, the answer to all of those rhetorical questions is obviously no. But I think our ability to humanize others greatly, very much, is what helps us lean towards healing and helps us lean towards support. And as Ramadan is approaching, I thought that this would be a great episode to put out beforehand because so, so, so many Muslims suffer from substance use disorders and so many of them live in shame and so many of them don't get the help that they need and aren't you know received in the best of manners by our community um, and I think that has a lot to do with the psychology of people um, and ab culture or you know shaming culture where it's like we don't talk about this so it doesn't exist out of sight out of mind but this is you know this is a person these are people you can't negate the fact that these people are Muslim you can't negate the fact that they're a part of our communities. And the idea that we can ignore it 
or the idea that it's a faraway idea as long as we're not speaking of it is completely absurd. And I don't know why it's it's become normalized. Or rather, I do again. It all just circles back to the shaming culture and the silence and not addressing things. So if we don't address it, then it really doesn't matter. But how they feel and how their spiritual connection is weakened by the fact that there's judgment from us or, you know, our larger community matters. It really does matter. And I wish it was something that a lot more, you know, Muslim parents, Somali parents spoke about to their children. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen. So Lynn, for a long episode, um, I honestly, when I first started doing Muslim Like Me or when I was brainstorming for the idea of Muslim Like Me, a lot of the conversations that I would have come from conversations I have with my family and friends, you know, and alhamdulillah, I come from a people, you know, who aren't ashamed about discussing these kind of things. And of course, there's always the general stigma and the cultural stigma um, that surrounds these topics, but I've always tried to like sit down and have these discussions even with my parents like why we don't treat those who have substance use disorders as people as a community you may be doing it on an individual basis don't get me wrong you know you could be a person who's decent and kind and understanding and is very conscious of the kind of terms you use when you're discussing substance use disorder and when you're speaking to those who suffer from substance use disorders but that's not the holistic idea from our communities if we're being really real about it you know and I I honestly feel like there's a huge gap in the support the kindness the outreach and for real, like when when we're just like when we're just being real, like just speaking on facts, the reason why a lot of them don't come forth outside of the ebb culture, which I'm gonna get into, which is like centuries deep of just intergenerational trauma that's never healed and is passed on to kids and so forth and whatever, it's also because peer support is really lacking. Like when your friends, you know, stop hanging out with you because they notice that you're addicted to a substance that you're using a substance consistently and that it's something that's become a part of your lifestyle, distancing themselves from you and choosing not to uh, engage with you, which again, I'm not putting the fault on those who are around them. It's never, um, it's never your responsibility to bear the burden of someone else's, uh, someone else's issues, but the treatment, the cold shoulder, the, we know, we know how they're treated. We know how individuals struggling with SUDs are treated in our community. And it's, it's very lacking. Um, I heard this statement made once by an uncle who said, you know, they're, they're, um, I don't want to use the word he used. It was just so insensitive, but he used a really, really insensitive term when he was referring to them. And he was like, that's all they're worth. That's all they do with their life, you know. You know, they're, they're a loss. You know, we should not engage with people like that who are a loss. And subhanAllah, as Muslims, having that kind of mindset is really, really dangerous. Not only to your faith, but to you as a person, you know. And your faith is you as a person in many ways. But like having the kind of mindset that we can fully give up on a person simply because they are struggling is wild to me. And I know a lot of people, like even in my friend groups, will be like, oh, hold on, you're such a, you know, humanist and you're like, you're like, I live in this bubble of happiness and rainbows. I don't think that's true necessarily. What I do think is true is that I'd like to see the best in everybody. You know, I'd like to see the potential, the best version of ourselves in everybody. It may not be easy. 
it may not be as simple as it sounds. Honestly, nothing really is as simple as it sounds if we're going to keep it a buck, right? But looking at people and only seeing their flaws is flawed. You know, it's like when you look at a person and all that you can deduct from them is, and if we remove this from SUDs, if we're not talking about substance use disorders and we're talking about any other um, struggle that Muslims have, we would see it as wild, right? Let me give a, a random example. If there were a brother or a sister in the community or even in the Somali community, because again, I'm talking about this from both a broad and a narrow perspective, um, who was struggling with gossiping, right? Let's, let's, let's make it something like simple. We don't see someone and be like, oh, you gossip, you know, gossiping is haram. And because you gossip, that's your identity. You're a gossiper. Right. And we're not going to accept you and we're going to stay away from you. Hell, a lot of people be chilling around people who gossip. A lot of people be, you know, in friend groups where once y'all disperse, you know, two by two, y'all talk about each other. You call up this person and be like, you know, she said this, she did that. Oh, can you believe her? You hang up. You talk about the person you, you just hung up on with the next friend. And of course, these are not sins that you should be proud of. Substance use disorder also is not something you should be proud of. But the treatment right? I think that's the core of my message. The treatment that we offer to them is so, it's very disappointing. It's, I don't, I don't really have another word for it that accurately describes the feeling. It's disappointing. It's really, really disappointing. They do not deserve that treatment. And I want to get into how and why, you know, the how and the why, because many times a lot of us don't give our brothers and sisters enough excuses. You know, the Prophet wasallam had this, um, Famous hadith, I can't really remember it off the top of my head, but he said along the lines of you should make about 70 excuses for somebody before you, you know, assume um, ill of them. We don't even make five excuses for people, right? Immediately, your head snaps to, ooh, boom, boom, ba. that's what they did, that's what they're on, conclusion made, finished, we're done, I, boom, we're over, you know? And it's like we rush to judgment so quickly, but wouldn't want others like to rush to judgment about ourselves. And it's really selfish, and but it's true. It's selfish, but it's true. How many of us are caught like, you know, not um, in the best state or like, you know, you're somewhere and people assume that you're up to no good, but you really aren't. Or maybe you were, but people assume the worst of you. And even when you are sinning, you know, publicly or privately, you, you, you don't want people to speak ill of you. So why would you think it's appropriate to speak ill of your brother and sister or sister who you see like, you know, publicly struggling? And again, like before I, I dive into anything else, I want to I want to speak on this very, very candidly. The struggle for those who are struggling with substance use disorders more often than not is a very, very public struggle. Just like think about that for a second. The fact that most of them have to struggle publicly, like everybody in their business, everybody in their mama in their business. And they literally just have to sit there and take it. That's wild. Like we literally as a community make people feel like they have a billion eyes on them, make them feel judged, make them feel like they don't belong, make them feel like they are literally the most incompetent version of a person simply because of something they're struggling with. And that is what it is. I feel like a lot of us like to give ourselves leniency in how we treat others when really it's not reflecting of the sunnah. It's not reflecting of the family values that you should have, right? Again, a lot of the times I, I 
I tend to like go down this this road of like rambling and ranting and going, oh my God, I can't believe like this is what people do and this is what people say. And I I am sometimes, you know, like I get I get really, really like into my emotions about it because it's something I'm very passionate about. But also sometimes it really just is black and white. It really is that simple. It's like do not speak so harshly to somebody when you yourself would not want to be spoken to in that same, same manner. Because a lot of y'all know how to dish it out, but don't know how to take it. And this isn't about a vendetta thing or about tit tit for tat, but it's more so just about the basic principles and decency that you should have when you're talking to another person, let let alone another Muslim brother or sister. At the core of it, what I was talking about earlier that I said I'll get into in regards to intergenerational trauma that not a lot of us, you know, spend even a minute thinking about before we rush to judge people. A lot of people, especially, I can't speak for other communities again. I'm Somali, so I'm going to speak about the experiences that I have witnessed in my own communities. Um, As a Somali person who grew up with both parents in my home, Um, which is not something, unfortunately, a lot of Somali people get to say. Not a lot of people who are raised, um, you know, there aren't a lot of people who get to have both parents in the home. Usually it's a single parent household, which in itself um, has a lot of, you know, uh, outcomes that make people feel a certain type of way. But I'm not trying to get into that tonight. What I'm trying to get into is, as a Somali person, my parents and their families face a lot of trauma. And trauma has a funny way of, you know, reviving itself in not only how they survived it, but also in how they parented us, how they raised us, the mentality a lot of us have been instilled with since childhood that we're unable to understand up until this point. Our families as Somali people fled war zones and I feel like because our parents don't really spotlight their trauma they don't really discuss it in depth they don't really make a big deal about it a lot of us have also managed to kind of you know push it to the back of our minds but our parents are people who literally survived war zones people who were torn apart from their families people who showed up to these western countries with nothing but you know nothing but god in their hearts honestly and They had to learn a whole new language. They had to build their lives up from literally scratch. I don't have to explain a lot of this to a lot of you because you already know. And it's something that we know, but we don't think of because we don't really discuss mental health or at least discuss it enough to understand just how much of that trauma that our parents and their families carry with them. And what trauma does to your brain is really interesting because we study in neuropsychology, which is the psychology of the brain, obviously. We study in neuropsychology the idea that people who have been traumatized, it actually rewires your brain. I, I don't know why I struggled to say that word. <laughs> rewires your brain. And like it, it actually causes a shift in not only your behavior, but also in your cognitive functionings. There are several, several researches. You can even look them up if you'd like to. I did my own research uh, two semesters ago. Shout out to me, a girl in STEM and academia. Uh, Academia in itself is something I could talk about for a whole episode. But I did a research two semesters ago to look at the... um, the uh, relationship between substance use disorders and uh, childhood trauma and intergenerational trauma. And I discovered with my research at that time that trauma that is inherently 
within someone from a very, very young age, whether you've been abused, whether it was trauma from a war zone, whether it's whatever kind of trauma it is, honestly, has an impact on you. And we look at this thing called the ACE scale, which is the adverse childhood experiences um, scale. And we look at how many adverse childhood experiences someone has had and how that's impacted them in their life. And when you look at the ACEs, you honestly notice that the more traumatized a person is or the more experiences that they have with them, the more inherent they are to react a certain way to certain situations. And again, the brain, wallahi, it's such, it's such a beautiful yet mysterious part of our bodies. Like, you know, sometimes our bodies can forget something and our brain doesn't and vice versa. Our brains will protect us and forget memories, but our bodies don't. And for people who experience trauma, our cognitive functioning, or at least at the frontal lobe of the brain, um, the, the wiring kind of flips, you know, so they lack cognitive skills or at least the cognitive skills are diminished to some point. And social impairments can occur. Again, this is research. This is not just me babbling. (laughs) Cognitive functioning and social impairment can occur due to the impact of trauma. And what does that do to someone? We we talk about the fight or flight um, mode a lot, very, very loosely. Um, But it actually is a very, very real thing. And what some of us really don't realize is a lot of our parents were put into fight or flight mode as children. As literal children, they had to choose to survive or not to survive. And many of us have the privilege to not think of that, you know? The saying, the passing down of generational trauma from that or as a result of that is very, very glaring in our communities because now what do we have? We have parents who've struggled. And I mean, really, really struggled. Struggled beyond anything I could even imagine, subhanAllah. Because my parents, whenever I ask them about the war, whenever I ask them about their struggle, they do tell me things, don't get me wrong. But I can tell that for the most part, they don't really want to get into the details of it. And many of our parents don't because they feel like that's not our burden to bear. They feel like... I worked hard for you to have these opportunities and for you to live a better life than I got to live. Therefore, these are not your burdens to carry. SubhanAllah. And the fact that our parents are that selfless in itself shows that their ignorance doesn't come from a place of malice, doesn't come from a place of hate, but just comes from a place of a culture they were brought up in. Um, Going back now to the intergenerational trauma, I feel that because our parents struggled so much for us to have these better lives we now have these better lives we're able to get jobs that are you know well-paying we're able to go to schools that are reputable and a lot of people even then even with the great job even with the great school struggle with depression anxiety and many other mental illnesses and it's really really tough to look your parents in the eye the ones who struggled way more than you could ever imagine struggling and telling them you're depressed or telling them that you have anxiety or telling them that you, that you have ADHD or whatever, you know, mental disorder that you've been diagnosed with. Because sometimes, honestly, as a community, we feel that our parents should not carry the burden of knowing these things, of feeling like they somehow failed because that's how it's translated in our community, that your parent failed if you have a mental illness which it isn't. It's a very ridiculous idea. But that's how that's how it's translated in our community. And 
So instead of telling your parents or instead of going out and getting medication, what do you do? You self-medicate. You self-medicate to the point where it's all that keeps you going, where it's what's keeping you functional. And then substance use disorders pop up and you don't want to tell anyone either. But at some point they might discover and when they do discover, it's, oh, you're a loss, you're a waste. I've spent all these years raising you. I've spent all these years putting so much energy into you and here you are, a disgrace. And the term disgrace or terms like you're a loss really really cut deep and i know our parents don't mean it they don't have ill intentions but sometimes words spoken out of anger unfortunately cannot be taken back and when these words are heard by people who are already literally hanging by a thread it just pushes them off the deep end and they say oh to hell with it i might as well you know continue doing what feels good because they already don't believe in me anymore i might as well continue doing what feels good because this is all that will make me feel good and the alienation and stigma comes from that comes from the fact that people consistently are gossiping about you no one is reaching out to help you your parents have made their disappointment very apparent And it it really is so heartbreaking to see even the ones who want to be helped are still facing so much stigma. Our community never forgets. And that is both a blessing and a curse. Because we never forget our accomplishments, our struggle, but we also never forget those who are struggling. Even when those people get better. Even when those people are trying. And... It's, it's really heartbreaking to see because people are trying to change and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with them because they are trying to change. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Allah does not change a people unless they want to change it themselves. And these, these kids, because a lot of them are, you know, my age, 22, 23, 24, they want to change. They want to be better, but there's no community support. There's nothing to look forward to. Or at least that's how they feel because there always should be something to look forward to. There always is a better version of you out there. There always will be potential for you. There always will be a point of return. There's never going to be not a point of return. But that's how they feel. And that's how we make them feel. And knowing that that's how we as a community make them feel in itself is extremely heartbreaking. It's really important, again, for me to highlight because it's very obvious, but... I in no way, shape, or form am condoning um, substance use disorders. I'm not saying they're a good thing. I'm not saying that we should support someone's use of these substances because sometimes people just want to see things from a very negative and warped perspective. What I am saying is this is a person, you know? They are not their SUD. They are not the substance they're using. They are a person. They are... um, a whole human being and I don't like associating someone's value with what they mean to other people like you know when people say this is someone's brother this is someone's sister this is someone's father even if you're nobody's brother even if you're nobody's sister you're a human being and that's the bottom line you know and at the end of the day speaking of or to another person as if they do not exist or as if all of their worth is within a disorder is really, really messed up. And the fact that there are some people out there who think that they are not redeemable is really, really disappointing. Um, I know, again, I intentionally decided to do this episode before Ramadan because if there are any brothers and sisters who are struggling with substance use disorders, this episode is dedicated to you and I really, really want to reach out. I support 
and want you to get better. I want you to feel supported in your path to recovery. I want you to feel like you matter. I want you to know that you do matter and that you are just as Muslim and just as you know valued of a member in our community as the rest of us are. Because there's this kind of weird way that people try to like say, yeah, you know, uh, this is our family member or, you know, this is our community member, but, you know, X, Y, Z. No, they are a community member, period. The sentence should stop there. They want to get better. And even if it's not something they want right now, we should try to reach out and show them that the better version of themselves is out there. Um, And since Ramadan is coming up, Again, I, I, I feel like there's this kind of weird ab, you know, or shame that surrounds those with SUDs during Ramadan because, again, they feel the need to use these substances to make themselves feel whole or what they think is whole. Um, and what we should be doing, actually, I'll get into what we should not be doing first. We should not be shaming them. We should not be giving them sideways glances when they show up for taraweh and tahajjud. We should not be, you know, trying to make these little comments that we feel are kind of sly. They're not. They're not. They, they hear everything you're saying. They're actual people. Um, and these comments actually really hurt. It's like the genius idea that came out of nowhere where like you can say whatever you want to as long as the person doesn't take it a certain way or isn't offended. As Somali people, Horta, we have this naqad of kaftan or like joking around and the jokes sometimes get a little too real and people get really upset about it and this is the kind of stuff that you should not be joking about this is not the kind of this is the kind of stuff where you should not be you know going you know this is just jokes why are you getting mad this is not that kind of stuff this is not the topic for that at all and i know that as a people we also tend to turn our pain into humor or laughter and we joke about things and you know laughing is our coping mechanism but here's the problem with that right here is the problem if you are not the person who has the substance use disorder you are in no place to be making those jokes i'm gonna say that again if you are not the person with the substance use disorder you are not in any place to make no jokes in fact, the fact that you think that you are in any place to make a joke is a whole lot of audacity. Wallahi wa iska. I don't know. It's like, it's very odd that people think just because you share similar identity, you could both be Somali or you could both be Muslim. Suddenly you think you have a free pass to be saying whatever it is you want to say about people. It's rude. It's wrong. And quite frankly, it says more about you than it does of them, right? Because this person is struggling, sure. But what does it say about you to be kicking somebody while they're down. You know, what does it say about you to be looking down upon someone as if you don't sin? You know, a lot of people don't realize all of us sin, whether it's, you know, a minor sin or a major sin. A lot of us, subhanAllah, Allah covers our sins for us and, and, you know, makes it private so other people don't have to witness it. But just because you sin privately or just because your sins aren't as glaring or as, you know, openly judged in our community as theirs are, do not mistake in that for you being above them ever. You are not above them. You are not better than them because you're not struggling. You are not, you know, you don't get cookie points as a Muslim person for making fun of somebody else. And their struggle or making jokes about somebody else in their struggle um on with the list of things we should not be doing or saying 
to people who have substance use disorders this Ramadan or any day, honestly. I feel like a lot of the times, you know what? Let me even like, you know, check myself real quick. We tend to become more self-conscious of ourselves during Ramadan because of course it is a book of Rahmah and I mean a month of Rahmah and a month of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But why are we not that conscious of our actions the other months you know of course we're trying to be the best versions of ourselves for ramadan but the best versions of ourselves should be something we strive towards every single day and i just wanted to check myself on that as well because i'm saying uh you shouldn't say xyz during ramadan you shouldn't say this anytime whether it's ramadan whether it's shaban whether it's Hijjah, you shouldn't be speaking to any human being in any manner that would make them feel slighted ever ever and again this just kind of like piggybacks back onto the point where the reason why they don't feel welcome you know muslims somalis with substance use disorders in our community it all points back to us it really does point back to us and again i'm not playing a blame game i'm not trying to point fingers and say it's on it's on a specific person it's on you know your mom or your dad or your uncle it's on all of us because we all have the power of our voices. We all have the power to speak up and stand up for somebody. We all have the power to defend somebody. We all have the power to say, this is wrong. You shouldn't be joking about this. Why are you all laughing? You know? And sometimes, again, there's the fear of alienation when you stand by people. Um, there always will be a fear of alienation when you stand by people who aren't generally accepted within the community. But think about it. Do you care more about other people's approval or the fact that this person continues to stray away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our community at large because of these, you know, well-intentioned jokes. I don't even think they're well-intentioned, but let's just let's just put it in, in air quotations. Because I'm y'all can't see me, but I'm literally I put them in air quotations, well-intentioned jokes. It's it's really not that hard to say, hey, they may be saying that, but I don't think that about you. I think that you are just as Muslim as I am. I think that just because you're struggling doesn't mean that I'm any better than you. It really does not. And I believe that you can get better and that you are going to be better and that the best version of you is waiting for you. I feel like, again, like, wallahi, we don't realize how strong and how meaningful those words are, how much they help, how much just saying nice, encouraging things to a fellow Muslim or another Somali person can lift somebody's mood. Knowing that one person believes in you, just one person is so powerful, so powerful. And I see this even again, now going back to as a clinical psychologist, I see this in my clients. I sometimes will get clients who feel like, you know, my whole family gave up on me. Why am I still struggling? Why am I still trying? Who is it worth trying for? And I always remind them, I always remind them, firstly, you're struggling for, and you're trying for yourself. You are a person and you matter. Because the self-esteem hit that they take from existing in our communities is so, so jarring. When you really see it holistically and you look at it from a, from a very sane perspective, it's jarring to see just how low their self-esteem is because of us. Sickening, wallahi, sickening. And I always say, again, not just for yourself, but also, I believe in you. I believe that you can get better. I believe that you can do this. I believe that the best version of you is waiting for you. And those words, I wish you guys could see the glimmer of hope that it gives people. You know, the idea that, hey, I'm struggling right now, 
but somebody believes in me. Somebody thinks that I can do better. Somebody believes that I can be better. It makes all the difference. And offering that to somebody, standing up for them when others are not, you know, treating them just as you would treat any other Muslim, any other Somali person in the community means the most. And it's something that I wish we practiced more. I really, really do. Brothers and sisters who are struggling, if you're listening to this, if you've come across my podcast by accident, if someone sent this to you, however it is that you came across this, I just want you to listen and understand that regardless of what anyone else has to say, I believe in you. I believe that you can get better. I believe that you are worth fighting for. I believe that you are going to become literally your full potential if you try. And you can try and you are trying and I acknowledge you're trying. And at the end of the day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's in your heart. Allah sees everything, you know? Allah sees and he knows. Allah knows that you're struggling. And we don't realize the wisdom of what happens to us. We don't know the hikmah behind our struggles, our trials and tribulations, but he does. And that's all that matters, is that at the end of this, on the other side, you're going to come out a better version of yourself, a wiser version of yourself, a stronger version of yourself. And that may not be enough motivation, but looking in the mirror every day, what I want you to practice is, and I'm speaking from literally my heart right now, Tell yourself every day when you wake up, look in the mirror and tell yourself, tell yourself, I'm going to get better because I believe in me and I can do this. And Allah is standing by me and Allah is by my side. And, you know, Allah does not give you more than you can handle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always knows what we can handle and knows what's in our heart. Because at the end of the day, again, we as people are very short-sighted. We only look at the now, you know? The furthest we look is maybe like five years when everyone gets asked that generic question at their work, like like whenever you're applying for a job, like what's your five-year plan? Like that's the furthest humans thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees our akhirah, you know, not even just this life. This life is so flimsy and just like, you know, fleeting. Allah sees so much far beyond just who you are right now. And all the hope you need is in you. And I support you in your recovery, and I believe in you, and I acknowledge that it's hard. Because not enough of us acknowledge how hard it is. You know, we, we tell people who are struggling with substance use disorders, why don't you just give up? You know, why don't you just stop drinking or stop smoking, um, you know, or stop using those pills? Why don't you just stop? And we don't realize how hard it is to stop. We don't know what withdrawal looks like, which I actually do know because of my career and because of my profession as a clinical psychologist. Seeing people go through withdrawal is probably one of the scariest things I've had to witness as a person, as a human being. These people are literally shaking, shaking, aching in pain, cramping, puking, sweating. You see like how Hollywood kind of like portrays um, substance use disorders and what they show you that's not even like that's not even a fraction of how people actually feel when they stop using these substances so the fact that they're struggling and they're going through withdrawal and they're trying so hard to get better in itself is a struggle you and I could never understand and I applaud every single person 
who's on the road to recovery, who's thinking about starting their road to recovery because you are worth it and you are loved and you are appreciated, even if you can't see it right now, because I know it's so hard for you to see it. And I know because of the shaming nature, you know, of the communities that we live in and our need to blind ourselves from trauma, it may not feel that way, but you are worth the struggle. And the struggle you're going through, as much as it's something that I will not be able to feel, I sympathize and I empathize. And one day, inshallah, I pray, I truly deeply pray that you're able to come out on the other side of this and see the best version of you because there is a best version of you. And I keep saying best version, best version, best version over and over again in this episode because the best version of ourselves, wallah al-azim, is out there. And every day I wake up and look, look at myself in the mirror and I go, hey, you're going to have a great day. And the best version of yourself is who you're working towards. Sometimes grad school, like I, I, honest, I honestly like rant about grad school all the time. But grad school can, can, can ruin a person. <laughs> grad school is tough, y'all. And some days I really do feel like giving up. And it's not something I talk about as often, the giving up part because of the fear of giving up and the fear of being, you know, disappointing to my family, to myself, more especially to myself, because that's even more scarier. But there are days where I sit and I don't know, you know, I just don't know. Days where I look in the mirror and I'm like, what kind of a therapist am I? What kind of a mental health practitioner am I? What kind of a clinical psychologist am I? How am I impacting people's lives? Am I impacting people's lives? And I think it's human to question yourself and the ever crippling imposter syndrome. Oh my God, I should, I wish I uploaded the episode about imposter syndrome because I had a lot to say about it. But y'all, imposter syndrome, it could get you in a chokehold. It's got the very best of us. And sometimes I don't know if I'm making an impact. I don't know if I'm helping people. I don't know if, you know, what I'm doing with my career is what I'm meant to do with my career. But I oftentimes stop myself you know, take a deep breath and remind myself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala plans whatever he plans for me and I have to trust it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala led me on this path to my career. And that in itself is a great reassurance for me. I don't know what the struggle of those who are facing substance use disorders is, subhanAllah. A lot of you who are probably listening in don't, but those who do know the struggle who do understand what it feels like, not only the physical impact, but the emotional, psychological impact, you know what I'm talking about. And you know that I mean it when I say that it's much, much harder than we can imagine, much harder. But at the end of the day, you can do it. You can do it. And inshallah, you will do it. Regardless of the naysayers, regardless of the people who give you sideways glances when you're trying to, you know, you know, do things that are beneficial to helping your path to recovery and your treatment plan, regardless of the people who snicker or make inside jokes about your therapy sessions or about your meetings, you know, uh, with your sponsors, etc. They don't matter. They're just the outside noise. All that matters is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees you. He sees your struggle. He's rewarding the fact that you are trying. And wallahi, the minute that we're able to realize, like truly realize that we are no better than anybody else. It's such a humbling experience, by the way. (laughs) It's really humbling to realize that you're calling someone who's struggling these crazy names and you yourself are not really like, you really ain't all that. Like, let's, let's keep it real. You're really not all that. As a person, 
I talk about this a lot um, with a couple of my friends who know people in their families who struggle with substance use disorders. And I ask them, what do you do in order to offer support? What do you do in order to make this person not feel isolated or not feel like they are not worth, you know, being redeemed? And they get stuck at that sometimes and stutter around a little bit because we don't really, we're really selfish people. We live in our own little bubbles, you know, going to work, school, whatever, chilling with the homies, you know, doing whatever you're doing in your little bubble without really thinking about the impact we're making on others, even our own family members, wallahi. And I often tell them all you really need to do, right, to be there for this person is let them know, I'm here for you. I am here for you in any way or shape or form that you need me. I am here for you if you just need somebody to rant to. I'm here for you if you need somebody to hold your hand. I'm here for you if you need someone to call at 3 a.m., you know, to listen to you. Sometimes people just need an ear to bend, honestly. And this is me speaking again as the therapist. People have a lot to unload off their chest. We all carry around our own internal baggage. We put a smile on our face while we do it, but we carry around our own baggage all day. And sometimes people just want somebody to be vulnerable with, to unpack with. And if you can, because not all of us are in the mental space to be able to do that, but if you can be that person for somebody, be that person for somebody. You can be that person for somebody. And if you choose to go down the path, you know, of being there for them, don't be a wishy-washy person, you know? You can't, you can't tell somebody, I'm here for you. And then five minutes later, when it's inconvenient to your little bubble of a life, you go, oh my God, this is too much work or I shouldn't have signed up for this. Don't sign up for it if you, if you don't know that you're going to be down for that person. But if you are down for them, that in itself is its own edges. You are collecting an immense amount of like rewards from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for being there for your brothers and sisters, for treating them like they're people because they deserve to be treated like people because they are people. I've been rambling for long enough. Um, also, for those of you who don't know, my previous listeners definitely know, I don't usually write out or do researches on topics that I cover I be speaking from the heart, y'all. I really, I genuinely care for our community. I genuinely care for our brothers and sisters who are struggling because we don't know what they're going through and we never will um, know what they're going through truly. And I just want to always offer insight for those who may not know, you know, or may not be in contact with that part of our community. At the end of the day, our brothers and sisters who struggle with substance use disorders or SUDs their struggle innately in itself is very, very, very personal to them, right? Everybody has their own story. I hate to generalize and say everybody with substance use disorder goes through X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. And if it came out like that on my podcast, and that's not really what I'm getting to, but what I am getting to at the core of this is stop stigmatizing. Stop making other people, stop othering, you know? Stop making folks in your families, in your Muslim communities feel like they are isolated simply because they are struggling. A lot of us struggle with different things. This just happens to be their struggle. And this Ramadan, I'm really truly praying for all of you, for everyone with substance use disorders, that you have a great month, that this month is a point of reflection for you, that it is 
and ease that it takes the weight off your che- off your chest and that you're able to cry to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you're able to bear your heart to him that you're able to seek help that you need there are so many mental health resources that I want to highlight on a lot of Muslim therapy resources that are out there that you can reach out to and get the help that you need. I feel like a lot of the times the issue with um, mental health that even those of us who acknowledge that mental health is important struggle with is the fact that there isn't a lot of representation, which is again part of why I got into mental health. I want there to be more people who look like me to listen to the people who look like me. (laughs) It's really like, it sounds really like childish when you say it, but like, I really want Somali people, I want Muslim people to feel represented. I, I want, you know, people who look like me to feel like they're someone with their shared experience or someone who understands their cultural perspective, who can listen to them and really and truly hear them. Because sometimes you'll go to therapy and you won't feel hurt, you know? Like I had, um, coincidentally watched a TikTok yesterday, I think, of a Somali girl who said that she went to therapy on campus and she was, you know, venting about issues that were going on in her family. And the white woman told her, you should just move out. You should just leave them behind. They're toxic. And the lack of cultural sensitivity, the lack of multicultural understanding can be a very, very, very huge issue in mental health. But there are many people, you know, there's hope. There are many people who look like me. There are many people who understand you. There are many people who want to help you. Like I want to help all of you. So reach out. Don't be afraid to seek help. It may be what you need right now. Um, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not given up on you. I think that's what I want to leave you guys with. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves you. Even when you think he's not there for you, he is there for you. He always will be there for you. He always has been there for you. He's seen every struggle, every tear, every scream, everything that you have, you know, concealed from everyone else, he sees and he knows. And the comfort of knowing that he's there for you and loves you and always will be waiting for you. If you walk to Allah, he runs to you. And I really hope that this this coming month is a month of spiritual healing, of peace, and of general, you know, self-reflection and understanding. Um, for those of you who are not struggling with SUDs, be kind. Be conscious of the words that you use. If you're able to defend, to support, to lend a hand to those who are struggling, please do. It's the least that we can do. And I think I'm done rambling <laughs> for this episode. If you guys enjoyed this, please don't forget to follow me on my socials, Sprinkles of Black on Instagram, Muslim Like Me Podcast. I'm your host, Hadan Khalif, and thank you for listening to this episode of Muslim Like Me. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.